This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. On the 21st of February, Bersatu Information Chief Wan Saiful Wan Jan and Segambot Bersatu Deputy Chief Adam Ratlan Ahmad Mohammad were charged in court for alleged corruption. The charges brought to the spotlight a government program that not many people have heard of called Jana Wibawa. But what exactly is Jana Wibawa and how much money was allegedly swindled? Joining me on the show today to help me unpack this and contextualize all of it is Raymond Ram. He's a certified fraud examiner with Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. Welcome to the show, Raymond. How are you? Hi, hi, Dustin. Thank you for having me. Let's start from the top, Raymond. What is Jana Wibawa? No idea. Well, that was the reaction for most of us when we right. heard that in, an investigation paper on the matter was opened late last year, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Jana Economy Pemerkasaan Contractor Bumiputra Berwibawa, or also known as Economic Recovery of Authorized Bumiputra Contractors, Jana Wibawa, was set up in November 2020, right, to empower Bumiputra contractors struggling during the pandemic. Mm. Now, under the scheme, Bumiputra contractors rated with three to five stars could attain contracts through direct negotiation instead of going through certain open tenders, processes and whatnot. Now, the contractors were to have been approved by Finance Ministry, of course. Now, this project is a continuation of Program Pembangunan Contractor Binaan Boyputra Berbibawa, which started way back in 1993. Now, right. the program is also dedicated to the development of Boyputra Malay contractors, where the members of the board directors, shareholders and others are 100% Boyputra. Right. So the projects under the, the Jana Wibawa were awarded either through direct negotiations or pre-qualified tenders. Could you explain what exactly this means? Well, firstly, uh, the implementation of the current initiative, uh, which was approved uh, by the cabinet during the uh, era of the prime minister at the time, Tan Sri Muhyiddin Yassin, uh, it was the aim was to speed up the implementation of government projects as well as increasing ca- the capacity of Muiputra contractors in the construction industry. Right? right. So, in addition, it is also part of the government's effort to achieve the target of strengthening Boyputra economic community, like the BEC. Now, coming to your question, right? Talking about uh, the direct negotiation, open tenders, right? right? So, any procurement method subjective to competitive submission of tender is open. Okay. Right. So, this is in contrast to procurement that is directly awarded without involving the evaluation of various submitted proposals. Right. Now, open tenders can be done in several ways. One of which, of course, is a request for proposal. Now, to borrow the classification from biology, uh, open tender is a genus while the request for proposal is the species. Right? Right. Now, of course, we have advantages to this. Now, the advantages of open RFP include early identification of risk and benefit and different proposals that can come in. Now, RFP also allows creativity, pushes innovation and whatnot because bidders can develop the best proposal for the project while the project owner gets to evaluate various counter plans to choose which is the most suitable one. Right. right. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Because um, a lot of times uh, when governments come and go, um, especially when, you know, when we were heading towards uh, the 2018 elections, um, when Pakatan Harapan came into power, there's always a lot of debate about, um, you know, open tenders or, uh, you know, direct negotiations and, and closed tenders. Um, what what is the key difference and, and why is there a lot of debate around this? How does, you know, either um, open tender or direct negotiations, how do these concepts um, tie into corruption? 
I mean, the, the idea is simple, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, but if you look during the emergency period, right now, there are, there are reasons why sometimes we move away from RFPs, we move away from uh, having a competitive bidding. It's due to be timeliness and specification, right? So we have right. direct negotiation being done. Now, of course, during the pandemic, the timeliness was there. We needed things fast. And the, if you look back at how Jana Wibawa came along, it's to stimulate the economy at the time. Right. So, and we, at the same time, we need to 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 get uh, the the, uh, the the businesses to come up to to be able to survive, to be able to strive in a, a proper economic environment. And we, we we couldn't move with the usual practice of having competitive bidding, bringing right. in proposals, evaluating them, taking our time, getting the best counter offers and whatnot. So so they, they are they are instances where we go towards direct negotiation, but of course most preferably we, we should go for an open tender system. Why? And that's the thing I want to understand, right? What is the risk um, we are, let's say, in an in a non-emergency? Like I I think you you laid it out really well that sometimes there is no choice or that the best option to solve a problem could be direct negotiations. But why is the open tender the preferred model? How does that way um, prevent um, um, corruption from happening? I mean, open tender systems provide better transparency in that right. sense. And also there's... Uh, there's Times there is differentiation between technical proposals, financial proposals, separate committees looking at it, bringing them together. You see, you have a number of people involved in decision making. At the same time, you have uh, you give a uh, you strive for competition in the business environment, right? Right. Instead of just going towards people you know or relatives, com- uh, companies that are owned by relatives or someone that that we offer preferential treatment to, and then go directly towards them and have negotiations being done. So, right. of course, RFP is of course a better option here. Mm. So, circling back to um, Jana Wibawa specifically, um, at that time, uh, you know, whether it's the MOF and, and all of that, they came out and said that although we are doing direct negotiations and, and whatnot, um, we will have specific criteria. They said, don't worry, this will not be like previous times where we had to do, where we did direct negotiations. This will be a bit different. Um, what do we know about the criteria set in place to secure the projects under Jana Wibawa? Very true. As you rightly pointed out, when, when the plan was laid out for Jana Bibawa, we had the criteria set, right? So basically, there are two qualifying phases that were laid out. Okay, first phase assessment is at the level of Ministry of Finance, right. while the second phase is to be managed by the implementing agencies involved. And this includes, you know, uh, Malaysian Public Works Department, JKR, or Ministry of Rural and Regional Development, or the Department of Irrigation and Drainage, right? So these are some of the departments even involved. Now, when we look at phase one, when it comes to MOF, the committee at MOF level will ensure that all criteria are met by Bumiputra contractors, or the contracted candidates, I mean. It is understood the assessment will be carried out based on three levels. The first level, the company must meet mandatory assessment requirements of their Bumiputra status, hmm. be registered as grade seven contractor with CIDB, and have a score rating uh, for at least three stars. Right. The second stage, of course, is to ensure that the company is involved uh, I mean, the companies involved have good financial standing, minimum liquid capital set according to the value of the project, and of course, having financing uh, facilities available when they carried out these projects. Now, that's at MOF level. When you go towards the implementing agency, the shortlist or I mean, shortlisted contractors then will be submitted to these agencies for the purpose of inviting them to submit bids. Right. Okay. And the best companies involved will be invited to you know. Um, we invite you to take on these projects. 
per se. Right. So, in your expert opinion, do you think um, these um, conditions that were set or, or the criteria that were set, um, were they good enough um, uh, in terms of, you know, trying to prevent corruptions? And because, like I said, that was the, the sort of argument. They said this is going to be different from previous, um, you know, direct negotiations. We got no choice. We have to do these direct negotiations. But these are the criteria. When you analyze the criteria set, um, are, are these uh, solid criteria uh, or were there a lot of loopholes that, that could have been, uh, you know, sort of um, taken advantage of? From a holistic view, this is just general criteria that, that is usually set up. Right. They are weaknesses. They are gaps where it can be exploited. It totally depends on who is in charge here, right? If, if you want to, to, if you want to talk about the room for bribery and corruption, they are, right? Because you, you, you can have agents involved. You can have third parties negotiating with one another. You can have uh, uh, doctored documentations that even come in and, and be accepted. So it, they are room that can be exploited, but then again, these are very generic, general criteria that were provided to us. Right. On the show with me today is Raymond Ram, Certified Fraud Examiner at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. After the break, we discuss if these charges are political persecution. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Raymond Ram, Certified Fraud Examiner at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory, and we are talking about the Jana Wibawa corruption scandal. So, Raymond, how much money Raymond was channeled to these programs? Well, Jana Wibawa involved 56, uh, so far what's reported, 56 projects that were issued letter of acceptance. Total value of project was 6.3 billion, and this was according to what was reported by the uh, Prime Minister's Department. Right. So, however, a few letters of, of acceptance involve family members of top leaders from certain political parties. That's where the issue started. Right. Right. And, and there on, uh, according to our Deputy Prime Minister, some 5.7 billion worth of projects under this particular scheme has been halted temporarily until the procurement and expenditure procedures set by Treasury that I mentioned just now is confirmed to have been followed. Right. So, what went wrong, Raymond? Because... Criteria were set. Um, then we have, um, you know, the the projects. Money is being funneled, uh, channeled to these uh, projects. What went wrong? How did this become a case of corruption? Well, the color, current allegations and charges put upon a senior ex party representative and businessman. Right. At, uh, that despite all assess all these assessments, the uh, projects under Jana Bibawa was awarded through direct negotiation. And selected tenders were awarded the contracts, were awarded to contractors who are friendly to certain parties, right? And in addition, what causes the dispute is when there is a project given to a company which is friendly to a certain party, but incapable of taking up such projects. Like I said, they were criteria set earlier, right? right. You need uh, to be able to be liquid enough enough capital to work on the projects, have financing facilities made available. They did not have these criteria met, but still they were awarded these projects. Right. So, where do we go from here? As we know, um, you know, investigations are ongoing, but what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? How uh, do these investigations take place? Now that, you know, we've already gotten some information coming out, uh, what, what happens next? Well, we just have to give room to the MACC to carry out their investigations. Hmm. You see, uh, my point of view is this. The MACC is just carrying out its duties based on 
what what is supposed to do because they have received reports of such uh, such acts being taken place during that time. So they are carrying out their investigation. At the moment, they have already charged two high-profile individuals, one being a businessman, another one being a ex uh, ex chief information officer mm-hmm. in a in a party, mm-hmm. right? So we've seen that charges are being laid out. That means they are evidences that has been found, right? Because to to get the DPP to issue a charge of such. They are evidences that we found. We just got to give them room to carry out investigation and let the courts take due process in going along and let's see where, where what comes about. Because it's an ongoing case. We still see charges coming about. We still see new updates coming along every day, actually. Some people who are under investigation or who have been called up to give a statement have come out and said, I'm not a suspect, uh, you know, I'm just a witness, I'm not a suspect, I, I was just called in to give my statement. And then a day later or so, MACC will come out and, and say, okay, everybody pump the brakes, um, you know, it's not up to you to decide uh, whether you're a suspect or a witness. Um, you know, when we call you for under investigation, it means you're under investigation. That's essentially what's been going on. Um, what is your take on this? I mean, at the end of the day, with all due respect with what has been said uh, and the statements that have come out of certain senior uh, public officials and you know, uh, certain senior ministers and whatnot, we, we, we can't take their statements uh, on, you know, uh, we can't take their statements based on what, what they have said only. We have, to, right. we have to reflect back on what the MACC is doing. They cannot reveal information on an ongoing investigation. Right, they, you need to give them room to carry out investigations. And yes, it's true. You should not come out after interviews and state, give such statements, whether you are involved, not involved. It's for the MECC to determine. It's right. for them to 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 sort for evidences and whatnot. So again, it's 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 a tricky situation and tricky time at the moment with state elections coming, with uh, for the politicians politicizing this whole thing, right? So so we do not want to get caught in this particular. Uh, dilemma per se, or these statements that are coming out from certain politicians. Let's just focus on what's being reported from from the MACC, from the courts as we go along. Absolutely. What about the laws that are currently uh, present in our country, Raymond? Do we have sufficient laws to deal with this issue? What laws are we looking at here? Well, I believe we do have sufficient laws to prosecute wrongdoings of such nature. Hmm. Again, bribery and corruption is wrong. Right, right. Uh, we have the Amlapwa when we talk about money laundering. We have the MACC Act, which criminalizes the act of bribery, corruption, and if required, you can even bring in the penal code, right? Mm-hmm. And this would provide relevant sections to criminalize such acts. So I don't see that we are lacking the laws. We we just need to give time to uh, the law enforcement agencies to carry out their duties, and later on, let the courts decide whether uh, there is a case whether these people had actually perpetrated state crimes or not. Right. Do we need to enact new laws for the purpose of, let's say, in the future, if we you know, we want to prevent um, these sorts of um, instances from happening again? Because I ask this because when we look at, for example, the various uh, corruption charges that uh, former Prime Minister Najib is facing right now, there are cases where experts will come and say, okay, let's say the SRC case, very straightforward um, easy case to 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 tackle in court, and then like perhaps the one MDB case, 
far more complex, involves political funding acts, it involves a lot of loopholes that can be exploited, uh, it involves like, you know, banks from all over the world. So it becomes like this complex thing where people say, do we have sufficient laws um, or is, is the current ecosystem too easy um, to be exploited? But in this case, where do you see it on that spectrum? Is it one of those more straightforward cases or do we see a lot of challenges, perhaps because of the lack of um, infrastructure within our legal system or laws or yeah, and things like that? How, how do you see this case? Well, my personal opinion is this. We have the laws and there they are no need for new laws to be enacted here. Mm. However, right, we could look at having laws to reflect more transparent government procurement during emergency periods. Right, that's fine. Right. Government procurement during emergency Also, uh, the set, setting up of stimulus packages and how distribution of aid is being done. Those are areas where we can look into, right, during emergency periods. Yes, political financing is an issue. That right. is a separate issue that we need to talk about. We need laws in that area, right, right which we do not have at the moment. But besides that, I believe we have uh, the, the legal the legal means of going after perpetrators for any form of bribery and corruption, right? We just need the right witnesses, the right evidences to surface, and things can go forward. Now, some have called these investigations um, nothing but political persecution. How would you respond to this? Again, like I said, it's, it's a tricky time, right? And say, saying that uh, the state elections are coming about, we have politicians politicking this whole thing. But I reckon we should give space to the MACC to carry out their investigation and let the courts carry out its due process. And all day, they are the, the investigators, the law enforcement agency should carry out its duties without fear or favor, right? That's the that's main thing. Without fear or favor in a sense of whoever the current administration is, whoever the current standing government is, we should focus on the reports that had come in, conduct our due pro I mean, our our investigations as per the process required, and report as things come along, right? So far we have seen them only perform their duties as they should, and it should not be politicized in any manner. Raymond, on the flip side, um, there is a question about the MACC's independence. Um, as we know, the MACC has been accused of not being independent in the past. Um, just uh, during the height of the pandemic, public actually protested against the MACC chief, Azambaki. So, is the MACC independent right now? How independent is the MACC? Again, uh, MACC is rather independent, but there are certain reforms that are required, right? right? And the Raya CSOs and everyone else has been has been speaking this out loud for quite some time. Two areas that require immediate attention. Mm -hmm. Number one is the appointment of the chief commissioner, right? right? In that sense, we're talking about, uh, of course, the Agong appoints the chief commissioner of the MACC, but it comes from the recommendation of the prime minister, right? right? So it can be manipulated by the government of day or the new prime minister that comes in. See, it can be manipulated. Now, the other part of things would be uh, the reporting structure of MACC. It should be directly to Parliament, right? We do not, we, we cannot park it under a certain department. It needs to be directly to Parliament. Also, you need to have a select committee when it comes to certain decisions that to be made, right? So, so these are certain amendments that should be done going forward, right? And that would improve as MACC's image as well. Absolutely. All right. Um, before we wrap this conversation up, Raymond, would you have some final thoughts or a final message for us? 
Well, uh, I strongly believe that we should stop politicking, like I said just now, stop politicizing these matters uh, related to, uh, matters related to the case. Bribery corruption is wrong, right? And the perpetrators should be accorded the penalties for offenses they have deemed to have committed. And to quote the words of our current prime minister, there is no need to fear prosecution or reprisal if your hands are clean, right? Because they, they, there is no agenda here that we see of going after certain parties. The whole idea is that we, we, we are letting the law enforcement agencies carry out their duties as per how they should and let that go forward. And on that note, Raymond, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Raymond Ram. He's a certified fraud examiner at Grey Matter Forensic Advisory. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever we get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.